0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Abayomi Azikwe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan African Journal. The Pan African Journal is a magazine is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, June seventeenth, uh, twenty twenty-three, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. In the United States, uh, this is Juneteenth uh, weekend. Uh, it was designated as a uh, some two years ago in 2021. It represents the end of African enslavement uh, in the United States, uh, which was delayed uh, in the state of Texas. And, of course, June 19th was the day uh, that... Uh, Union generals uh, told enslaved Africans in Galveston, Texas, that they were, in fact, no longer uh, enslaved in bondage. And uh, Monday will be uh, the federal holiday for June 10th. Also, June is Black Music Month, and we're going to continue uh, Black Music Month recognition and celebration uh, this week as well. The program today features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the African leader's peace mission to Ukraine and Russia. We're going to discuss the critical shortages uh, that are plaguing uh, the Republic of Sudan as fighting continues, resulting in part in the assassination of the governor of the West uh, Darfur province. Rebel attacks in Uganda have left dozens dead. We'll have details on that as well. And the Malian Foreign Ministry has ordered all United Nations personnel to leave uh, this West African state. In the second and third hours, uh, we continue uh, our Black Music Month recognition. Uh, we'll present the latest installment of our Black Music Month programming. And uh, in this, we look back uh, on the lifetimes and contributions of Shala Moana, Charlie Patton, Ike and Tina Turner, and Fela Analapo Kuti. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program.
2: Stay tuned.
1: Uh, We're going to take our musical interlude uh, with Shala Moana uh, from a 1985 release. And Shala Moana was born on March the 13th of 1958 in Lubumbashi, then part of the Belgian Congo, uh, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. She was the second of ten children of Amadeus and a soldier, and Alphonsine Bambiwa-Tumba, uh, who was a homekeeper in 1964 when Moana Moudike uh, was six years old. Her father was murdered. Uh, she was raised by her mother, who died in 2005. In June of 2020, she was rumored to have died but was instead hospitalized after suffering a stroke. In November of 2020, Moana was arrested by the National Intelligence Agency. Reportedly, uh, for her song, Ingratitude, which was interpreted by many to be a veiled criticism of the now President Felix Chessicete towards his former mentor and predecessor, uh, President Joseph Kabila, who uh, she was a strong supporter. The singer was a public supporter of the former President Joseph Kabila and his party, the People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy. On December 10th of 2022, Shala Moana died in Kinshasa at the age of 64. Right now we're going to listen to music from Shala Moana. And this was released in 1985.
3: Thank you. Give me a i
1: back, and uh, that was uh, the music of Charlotte Moana, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, June 17th, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswise segment uh, of our program. And these are some of the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. And uh, there has been an African uh, leadership delegation uh, that has gone uh, to both Ukraine uh, on yesterday and today uh, to the Russian Federation. African countries uh, stand for indivisibility of global security. And Russia backs this principal position. That's according to uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, he said this earlier today after Russian President Vladimir Putin's meeting uh, with an African peace mission. First first of all, they, the African countries highlighted China's well-known 12 points, which were presented a couple of months ago, and they highlighted those parts of that Chinese initiative that are close to them and that stipulate that there are uh, no uh, double standards in the world that all the principles of the United Nations Charter and their integrity and correlation are respected and implemented, uh, that there are no unilateral sanctions, that there are no attempts to ensure someone's security at the expense of others, that security is indivisible on a global scale. They are the principal attitudes that we share, he said. Lavrov also pointed out that African countries have shown an understanding of the root causes of the Ukrainian crisis which was created uh, by uh, the West efforts. They have shown an understanding that this situation has to be resolved by grappling with those root causes by working out specific real actions to eliminate the causes that are undermining and have been undermining air security in Europe throughout many years, the Russian foreign minister said. And in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, in the Republic of Sudan, uh, fighting is continuing. And of course, um, the situation there has led to the assassination of the governor of West Darfur State and head of the Sudanese alliance, Kamis Abdallah Abkar, killed um, just four days ago, uh, two months after the start of the armed conflict between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces in Khartoum. Kamisa's assassination <clears throat> came two hours after a telephone interview with Al-Haddad TV in which he accused the RSF and Arab armed militias of killing civilians in the capital city of West Darfur State. In addition, uh, the slain ruler appealed to the international community to intervene and protect civilians, stressing that the Sudanese army and the joint forces of the Darfur armed movements were unable to intervene to protect them. <clears throat> and another uh, news from uh, Sudan, the war between the rival generals entered a third month uh, two days ago uh, with no end in sight in Sudan where planes bombed a southern town for the first time and the regular army accused paramilitaries of abducting and murdering a governor in Darfur, which we just mentioned. The Air Force carried out airstrikes for the first time on El Abid, a town of 350 kilometers south of the capital of Khartoum, which has been encircled uh, by paramilitary forces since the beginning of the fighting, several witnesses told the international press. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, the Sudanese army accused paramilitaries from the rapid support forces of having abducted and murdered the governor of West Darfur State, Kamis, Abdallah Abakar uh, described the incident as a brutal act. The alleged assassination means that the rapid support forces have added a new line to their list of barbaric crimes committed against all the Sudanese people. The army said in his Facebook post, the governor's death could not be independently confirmed uh, according uh, to the some elements of the international press. The fighting, uh, which began on April the 15th, has so far been concentrated mainly in Khartoum, the capital of five million inhabitants, and in the vast Darfur region in the West. This war between the army of the General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan and the paramilitary rapid support forces of General Mohammed Amdan Tagalo has claimed more than 1,800 lives according to the ACLED, which is a non-governmental organization. More than 2.2 million people have fled their homes across the country, including over a million from the capital of Khartoum, according to the International Organization for Migration, the IOM. More than 528,000 of these displaced people have taken refuge in neighboring countries, according to the United Nations Agency. Surveillance who have not fled have no food, water, or medicine left. Ahmed Taha, a Khartoum resident, was quoted in the press. We have nothing left. The country is devastated. Whenever you look, you see the impact of bombs and bullets, according to this witness. And in other news uh, taking place uh, on uh, the African continent, Uganda suspected rebels attacked a school in a remote area near the Democratic Republic of Congo border, killing at least 41 people in a nighttime raid before fleeing across the forest frontier, according to authorities. Thirty-eight students in their dormitories were among the victims. Some students were burned beyond recognition, and others were shot or hacked to death after militants armed with guns and machetes schooled in the frontier district of Kasisi, a local mayor told uh, the Associated Press. In addition to the 38 students, one guard and two residents of the local community in Imaham, Biwe, town were killed in the attack, said Mayor Salivas Maposi. A Ugandan military statement said the rebels abducted six students, taken as porters of food looted uh, from uh, the school's store. The school co-head, and privately owned, is located about two kilometers just over the mile from the Congolese border. Government shutdown warnings rise as Republicans seek to deeper cuts in the budget battle, and that was taking place uh, in the United States uh, over the last several weeks. In the Democratic Republic of Congo and in the, uh, Uganda, authorities are blaming the massacre of the Huberiha Secondary School on the Allied Democratic Forces, or the ADF, a shadowy extremist group which has been launching attacks for years from bases in the volatile eastern D- Villages in the Congolese provinces of Ituri and Kivu have been the victims of the group's alleged attacks in recent years. But attacks on the Ugandan side of the border are rare, thanks in part to the presence of an Alpine brigade of Ugandan troops in the region. The attack uh, has sent shockwaves in this normally peaceful East African country whose longtime leaders cite security as a strength of his government. It is also a blow to the country's armed forces, who since 2021 have deployed in parts of eastern Congo on a mission specifically to hunt down the militants accused of attacking a school. Speaking to reporters near uh, the scene of the attack, the commander of Ugandan troops in the DRC told journalists that the rebels spent two nights in Kasisi before carrying out their attacks. He gave no further details. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, in um, the West African state of Mali, uh, Mali's top diplomat demanded yesterday that the United Nations peacekeepers uh, who have been in the West African country grappling with an Islamic insurgency for more than a decade, that they leave immediately claiming they have failed in their mission Foreign Minister Abdullahi Job uh, made the request in a speech to the United Nations Security Council he said the United Nations mission had not achieved its objectives and was sowing distrust among the people Mali was has struggled to contain an Islamic extremist insurgency over the last uh, 13 years extremist rebels were forced from power in Mali's northern cities the following year With the help of a French-led military operation but they regrouped in the desert and began launching attacks on the Malian army and its allies then uh, the United Nations peacekeepers a contingent of more than 15,000 came in and a few months later in what has become one of the most dangerous UN missions in the world at least 170 peacekeepers have been killed in the country since 2013 With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world, the Pan African NewsWire represents the only daily international news source on Pan African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan African Journal, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that is at uh, Pan African News. Blogspot.com. That's pan African blogspot.com And if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
2: I'm about to go about this thing. Oh. <clears throat>
4: God when hot women going crazy ever live will you kill a man yes i will Dead yes, by I me long to get my, baby, you know I need my, it means don't poison the lifetime, it's about hey, baby, oh, I long, about my... all the i go to be, you don't want to fight battle. Look your baby, would you slap me? Yes, I will. Get out baby, you know I'm a fool Five would you kill a man? Yes, I will. You know I'll kill a man. Get out of me. that you a cool about him. By me, that baby. I, I wanna hear you do it, Baby will quit me, yeah, huh? Oh, it's all I want, is, is, me, is you know. Look here, I'm All I want, my.
1: blues artists and uh, this is uh, Black uh, Music Month and uh, we're going to listen to a audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Charlie Patton let's listen in
5: well the significance
6: of Charlie Patton cannot be understated Charlie is a force of nature, incredible voice. It's kind of like a masking style where you create a character with a voice and then you comment on what this character's doing, you know? You know, I want to wear a roll, power, Charlie. Roll, Charlie, down the
4: line. Well, what are you doing then? Oh, oh, oh. going to take him down.
6: It was like he was playing all the parts, everything. It was almost like a musical play, you know, where he was singing all the different parts of the characters or side comments. And if you listen to the music, he always has that lope, you know. You know, you look at, you look at some of these guys and you go like, okay, so what does this guy do all day long? All day long, he's got two mules, and they're just going up and down the field plowing. That was the only way they did it. They
4: never tracked her.
6: But all of that's in the music.
7: The flat, the Mississippi Delta, stretching from Memphis in the north to Vicksburg in the south, was cotton country, where blacks substantially outnumbered whites and lived a sharecropper's life that kept them tied to the same plantation year after year, creating music that dealt with the conditions of their life head on.
2: See, if you escape from the problem, you're not dealing with it. But the blues is for confrontation and improvisation. There's a confrontation of the fact that life is a low-value or a dangerous proposition at best, and then you improvise playfully, hopefully, playfully. If you can do it playfully, in comes options which are going to add up to it. elegance, which is beauty, and now you're making art.
4: I
8: I think it's real interesting that when W.C. Handy talks about the first time he heard blues, he was waiting for a train that was something like eight or nine hours late uh, in Tutwiler, Mississippi, which is down in the very heart of the Delta, and he went to sleep and was awakened by a man with a guitar playing with the slide and singing uh, Going Where the Southern Crossed the Dog, which was about uh, where the Southern Railroad crossed the railroad that they called uh, the dog in the vernacular of the period. He was totally knocked sideways by it and he said in his autobiography that it was the weirdest music he ever heard. I think W. C. Handy was the father of the blues industry, the father of the blues business.
2: He's a father of the blues because he made it available. He made he put the blues in the public domain by codifying the blues, by analyzing musically what was happening. And he said, "There this is twelve bar chorus here. This is an eight bar chorus.
8: Handy's songs that are called blues, you have to distinguish between the sort of blues craze and pop music that was initiated partly by Handy and blues as it was played in the South, because most of Handy's compositions are much closer to ragtime than they are to blues. That is, they'll have three or four different strains, more like a march than, than any kind of folk song.
2: And that when I use that, that's to include jazz or any aspect of it. Um, is its emphasis on Picasso's statement, and uh, that's from its idiomatic source in the so-called black community of, uh, of of the United States, who African-derived disposition to use all instruments as if they were extensions of an African talking drum. So the so the music is uh, incantatory and percussive uh, in oh,
5: that way.
8: Plantation Plantations a very large plantation, very large tract of cotton land near Tutwiler near Sumner Mississippi, fairly near Cleveland Mississippi. It's right in the heart of the delta and a large number of the earliest delta blues musicians that we know about lived on that plantation and during the early 1900s that plantation was known all over Mississippi as the place to go if you wanted to learn to play blues. Charlie Patton lived there. He later took off and rambled quite a bit.
7: There's just one photograph of Charlie Patton in existence. But this womanizing, hard-drinking, sometime preacher from the Dockery Plantation is the first Delta Blues man we can put a name to. He played and sang with a rhythmic complexity that influenced top Delta Blues artists from Sunhouse House and Robert Johnson to Muddy Waters.
4: Oh, don't you know in will break up, I know I live in this old way I woke up in the morning Things all around your bed Ever woke up in the morning Things all around your bed
9: no you're
4: there Turn my feet to the wall And I never not to say No use, darling No you i feeling cry No use, darling No use, feeling you got all Mama,
8: long as I got mine. And certainly if you look at early blues recordings by people like Charlie Patton, the melodies there are not European in any real sense. They're like very, very narrow compass to the melodies. Um, a lot of pitch play and, and microtonal flattening of pitches.
1: Everybody have the blues There's no doubt about it. Everybody have them. But everybody's blues aren't exactly the same. And everybody don't express it the same way. They express it according to the type of uh, raising and the surroundings that they have been around.
7: Blind Lemon Jefferson sang the blues according to his raisins and surroundings in East Texas, playing on street corners and in juke joints and taverns in the rowdy Deep Ellum section of Dallas. Blind Lemon's singing, filled with moans and hollers, along with his hammer and guitar style, influenced a wide range of bluesmen once he began recording in the 1920s, making him, for a time, the most successful down-home blues singer in America.
4: Black Snake crawling in my room Some pretty mama, better come and get the Black Snake soon Oh, that must be a bad bug, baby, I can't can't bite that heart Oh, that must be been a bad bug, when I just can't bite that hard. my sister
10: for 50 cents, she said, no one ain't a child in a
11: yard. At the turn of the century, all the workers built a 12-mile-long railroad from Dockery all the way to Ball, And so that train brought all that food here and kept those people alive. But what it did was, it brought all the blues singers here. And back then, they had no fans, no electricity, no running water, Mm -hmm. no nothing, and so they wouldn't have heard anything all week long while they were working, except maybe the wind and the leaves. And all of a sudden, these guys would show up, they'd come in on the train, can you imagine what that did to them? Mm -hmm. They'd been working so hard all week long, and wow, people (laughs) would show up playing (laughs) metal acoustic (laughs) national guitars, loud and brassy. (laughs)
4: You got a letter this morning.
10: I ring it red. Feel horror yeah. You love it then.
4: moment. I'll ring it red. You say hurry, Up suitcase, out down the road. When he got down,
5: she on a board. He his suitcase, and he out down the
11: road. This documentary commissary that we're sitting in front of drew a lot of people, like Sun House, all kinds of blues singers. Almost all of them back in the 20s and 30s came here because of the isolated group of people and they could perform in front of them. So they had a, a captive audience almost.
8: Mm-hmm. In that era, uh, the reality was, you're a sharecropper, you're working hard every day of your life, and music was a break from reality, a break from that hard day-to-day
12: work.
11: The reason Dockery is considered to be the birthplace of the blues is because of all the education that went on here. Howlin' Wolf came here as about a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, Howlin' Wolf's a...
9: Big bluesman. Mm-hmm. Well, he
11: couldn't do anything when he came here mm-hmm. with a guitar. Charlie taught him how to play the guitar. When he was about 18, he left. At the same time, Pop Staples came here. Sure. Tommy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunhouse came here. Mm-hmm. Robert Johnson came here. Mm-hmm. And he's considered the best guitar player of the blues. Mm-hmm. But they all learned here from Charlie. And Honey Boy Edwards played here. He was probably one of the last original blues singers to actually play here at Dockery.
12: This previously unseen footage includes the earliest film performance by a Dockery musician, Honey Boy Edwards, playing on a street corner in
9: 1942.
5: Lord to when I'm down, I'll
9: be the same way when I ride. I can see my woman, baby Boy, she's standing
3: on
2: the other side
9: Lord, I'ma walkin' you down to the beach now yeah. See that girl, though, Mexico
12: Interviewed Honeyboy, Boy, he was ninety-one years old. One of the last musicians with direct links to Charlie Patton.
9: This is Honey Boy Edwards, and I was born in Shaw, Mississippi in 1915, and I played guitar, my father played guitar and violin, and my mother played harmonica. And my name is Honey Boy Edwards. And that's about whatever. This is me. Charles Patton, he was Indian. He dressed clean, was out, curled to the side. He's Indian. And yeah, he had some good-looking women. I used to go with one of his women. Well, he was distracted at the time because he made calls that didn't too many people make. But Charles Patton called him the fond of of delta He was a good blues back in that time, and he his name is ranging all through the desert, Charlie Patton, Charlie Patton. He plays all the country dances. I'm going to move to Alabama. I'm to move to Alabama. I'm move to
4: Alabama.
12: The 96-year-old guitarist Homesick James had vivid memories of Patton's performances.
13: The first time I met Charlie Patton, I was having a picnic. And I see all the dust jumping in the plans. It was Charlie Patton, making all that noise. He it was. It, <laughs> Charlie was a Yes, he was. Cause he'd get to the water on the ground when he played. He'd throw his guitar all behind his back and kicking that dress up with his feet. He was a good showman. He was. How did he
14: manage to be heard with just guitar? Voice.
13: Holler loud. Holler aloud. All of us get hit with the, the voices. You were too. Holler, holler at that mule all day long. <laughs> I didn't see it, but somebody said that um, Charlie knocked a mule down one time. He was rowdy enough to do it. And if his mule made him mad enough, he probably <laughs> attacked him. He would. That was kinda of rough.
9: Well, Charlie he drank a lot of whiskey, a lot of white whiskey. And he'd break up his own dances. He had broke his own, he'd fight. He'd get to play and get down somebody said he wanna fight. He'd break up his own dances. Charlie died in thirty four. He had got to fighting at Harley Ridge and some guy had cut him here on the throat.
12: Two years after Patton's death, Robert Johnson blended his style with the latest sounds from Chicago and St. Louis and made the most famous Delta Blues recordings of all time. He too was discovered by H.C. Spear and is now considered a forefather of rock and roll. His most direct musical descendant was his stepson, 91-year-old Robert Lockwood, Jr.
4: Left the station, with two lights on behind, when the train pulled away from the station, with two lights on behind, the blue light was my blue, and the raven was my mind.
15: That it
10: was one of Robert Johnson's turns. The the delta.
16: In June of 1929, this guy, Charlie Patton, a Mississippi Delta singer and guitar player, would take the long train ride 750 miles from Jackson, Mississippi, all the way to this neighborhood the small Indiana town of Richmond and in one day at the Jeanette studio would make blues history. Charlie Patton arrived here at the beautiful train station in downtown Richmond and he and a fellow bluesman named Walter Hawkins took the one mile trek from here to the Star Piano Factory along the Whitewater River. Now the Star Piano Company was owned by the Jeanette family. They produced pianos, phonographs and had their own record division and their own label called Jeanette Records and they had a recording studio in the back of the factory along the river and right in front of it was a railroad spur that often caused the interruption of recording sessions in a very unique setting for blues recording. We are at the site of the Jeanette Recording Studio here in Richmond right along the Whitewater River and it is here that Charlie Patton arrived in 1929. But by then, this studio had already made music history with landmark recordings by the likes of Louis Armstrong Big Spiderback, Jelly Roll Morton, and Hoagy Carmichael. But with Charlie coming here from the Mississippi Delta, it was time to make blues history. We don't know for sure how old Charlie was when he arrived in Richmond. He doesn't have a birth certificate, but we assume he was in his late 30s. From the lone promotional photo taken of him, we know he was a small man of mixed race, possibly part Cherokee, with wavy hair and big ears. He'd never been in a recording studio before, but he played in juke joints and house parties for years in the Mississippi Delta. He was known as a wild showman, and stories abounded about how he played the guitar between his legs and behind his head, and how his gravelly voice could carry hundreds of yards. So when he came to Richmond, he had a whole bag of tricks, and in that sweltering heat on June 14th, he performed a lively mix of original blues, country music, and gospel tunes. I wrote this book on Jeanette Records called Jelly Roll Bix and Hoagie because I've always been fascinated how this record label could set a fire on the blues and jazz movement, often through pure serendipity. And that was the case with Charlie Patton. Definitely with Charlie Patton. Charlie lived for years at the massive Dockery Plantation in the remote Mississippi Delta. By the 1920s, blues music was making commercial inroads with black consumers, and Charlie wanted a piece of the action. So he connected with H.C. Spear, a store owner, three hours away in Jackson. See, Spear moonlighted as a blues talent scout in the evenings for the Northern Record Labels, and he drove all the three hours to the Dockery Plantation to listen to Charlie, and he loved what he heard. So Spear struck a deal with Paramount Records, owned by the Wisconsin Chair Company in Grafton, Wisconsin, just north of Chicago. Just as Jeanette Records pioneered jazz recording, Paramount pioneered black blues. But until now, Paramount had not substantially recorded any music from the distinct Mississippi Delta. But there was one problem. In 1929, Paramount Records stopped recording in Chicago in order to construct a new recording studio in its home base in Wisconsin, so they had nowhere to record Charlie Patton. Paramount struck a deal with Fred Jeannette to use the Jeannette studio in Richmond to record and master 78 discs. This recording ledger shows that Paramount paid Jeanette $40 for each track mastered of Charlie Patton. Paramount and Jeanette worked this arrangement with several blues artists in 1929, including Blind Blake and the very last recordings of the great Blind Lemon Jefferson. The business agreement was simple. The more recordings mastered by the Jeanette studio, the more money they made from the Paramount label. So when Charlie Patton arrived, the message was simple. Give us everything you got. And he sure delivered with some of his best recordings, gospel, blues, folk of his landmark records like Screaming and Hollering Blues, Pony Blues, and of course the wonderful Spoonful Blues. Patton was also billed as Paramount's Mask Marvel. It was a bizarre promotion where record buyers had to guess who he was to win a free record. The records from Richmond sold modestly to black consumers in the South, but more importantly Delta Blues music was being documented and disseminated, a movement had begun. With his recording career launched, over the next four years, Charlie recorded another 44 songs for Paramount at their studio in Wisconsin and also for the Vocalion label in New York. But almost overnight, the commercial viability of these Black Blues records came to a crushing halt. The Great Depression crippled the recording industry with the small labels being hit the hardest. Paramount stopped recording music in 1932, and Jeanette's Richmond studio produced its last music in 1934. That same year, Charlie Patton died in the Mississippi Delta and was buried in a field near the small town of Holly Ridge in an unmarked grave, a slight later rectified by rocker John Fogarty, who ensured that a beautiful marker was erected. Since his death, the music of Charlie Patton has been kept alive by thousands and thousands of musicians across the world, ranging from Bob Dylan to Jack White. But it's always exciting to come to Richmond, Indiana, because even though he spent just one day here in this town, almost a century ago, it is celebrated throughout this city. And why not? Because that one day changed blues music forever.
5: Know
4: you's a holler Know you's a beauty in crime For you know you got a home, mama Long as I got mine It is 10 my pony and left my black man One on
17: Audition. And uh a man come through there picking a guitar called Charlie Peck, And I liked his sound. And so every night that I'd get off of work, I'd go over to his house and he'd learn me how to pick the guitar. But now
15: Charlie Patton he was just a guitar man. He just he just could handle the guitar. he pick it sitting up in his lap or on his shoulder, anywhere he wanted to, just put on his act, you know. No, I tell you what, Charlie had, he, he, just like you hear him saying there, he had a
6: growl in his voice, Uh, he didn't talk like that
17: all through Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, but I played all over the, the cotton belt countries, you know. that what started me playing the blues. Then I had a woman once, she was kind of nice to me, and she pulled off and left me, and that gave me the blues
15: shown up. I went to howl like a dog then, you know what I mean? Because we was over there on a place called the Strickland Plantation one cut one and nearly had two acts. And then uh, it was a lady doing all this see? The woman was pleading there way. He's talking about women going crazy every day of their life. Ain't but one kind of blues. And that consisted between male and female that's in love. Now, I've been married five times my jerky self, uh,
4: five
5: times. Yeah, I never, never see
4: you, I got it right, got it, got it wide, right. i meet you on that day, don't you, now my hand, my hand, my hand, yeah, I never hear me you
5: know,
4: calling him Lord, hey, you know I'm oh, all i going to take every day battle. It's all I want in this creation. I go home, want to fight about it.
17: Why is that? If you ain't got no money, you got the blues. Cause you're thinking evil.
5: That's right. Anytime you're thinking
17: evil, you're thinking about the blues. You see when a man gets scared. Done been in some man's house. And he you knew he wrong for being in there. And the man catch him in there. Or the woman catch her in there. And she have to run off and leave her shoes, you know. She gonna call back to Mary. Uh, he gonna call back to Joe. Tell Willie to bring my running shoes, cause I'm barefoot. You
4: know I need my... It means on more Moon the lifetime. It's
5: about
4: a... long.
15: And I said, there's water here and there's water everywhere. I said, I wouldn't move to Greenwood, but to tell him it's water there, he looked around at me and said, you're about to learn, ain't you, kid? <laughs>
5: you
15: know how I heard a man tell him? One time there in Ruba, Mississippi he told me he said, you know to listen at your records and then come to see you, say, I thought I'd see a man weigh two hundred and seventy-five pounds. Man, then he had a voice, bro. He had a voice.
5: And I did love to hear that voice
4: too. Real world rising high. Real world high. Boy, he's rising over there, yeah. I'm gonna move on to green light, oh, think it's good fire, boy I need blood fire. Do so we have water that I'm in
12: the road, road more everywhere. The Do what I do, and live, going down the road every while. Boy
15: you can't never see y'all. Then you wanna shut up in your room someplace, you don't want no company, too much, you're not mad with the other people. But you wanted to lock your door, get in there where you can cry good passion, hear somebody knocking on your door. You don't want to hear them, it's not you mad with them. You don't want no company right now. You want to sit down and concentrate in your own mind, you don't want no bother, Even with daddy, sister, mama, nobody, I wish they would go away.
4: One morning the Lordy wind coming to the the One morning. I, my, I, I shall not be moved. I shall not. I shall not be moved like it tree that stands by the water. I shall not be moved. Oh, turn back, I shall not be moved. Oh, turn back, I shall not be moved like it tree that stands by the water. Oh,
15: I heard him say several times he was he was a preacher. He wanted to be a preacher and all that kind of thing. And every now and then he'd play a church song on his guitar. And the last one he made was it, it went like this: farewell, you well, you well. If I never, never see you anymore, fare you well, you well. I'll meet you on the show
4: Planted by the water, I shall not be
5: moved.
4: Oh, sister, I shall not be moved. Oh, sister, I shall not be moved. Planted by the water, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not. I shall not be moved, like it be, it's painted by the water. Oh, I shall not be moved. Oh turn back,
11: I shall not be moved. Oh
4: turn back, I shall not be moved, like a has is painted by the water. Oh, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I killed I do
5: not be strategy,
1: baby, by the water. Oh, I shall not moved. And that was a discussion of none other than uh Charlie Patton, the legendary uh blues uh guitar player, singer, composer, and performer, uh along uh with uh The contextual uh, issues uh, related to other musicians, the social conditions under which uh, these artists arose, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journals, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, for Saturday, uh, June 17, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and June is Black Music Month, and here at the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Every uh, week uh, is Black Music Week, uh, Black Music Month. And uh, of course, this month was designated uh, back during the late uh, 1970s uh, as uh, Black Music Month due to the pioneering work of uh, composers and artists uh, during that time period. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. made her transition uh, last month and we're going to right now review uh, the origins of Tina Turner uh, with the Ike and Tina Turner review. Uh, Ike Turner, one of the legendary uh, pioneers of African American music in the United States and worldwide. Let's listen uh, to uh, this report.
18: Mike Turner was the best band leader that ever lived. He was the king of rock and
19: roll. He could make a piano talk and walk.
0: Behind the scenes, he was pulling all the strings. He controlled that whole stage.
20: Everybody got into the cocaine. Everybody else got into sexual orgies.
19: Mike was a violent man when I met him with his ladies. When Tina left, his life went down the drain.
21: He had a 45 and he tried to shoot himself.
19: He didn't know how to get out of this hole.
21: Prison
20: was probably the thing that saved his life.
19: The movie put such a bad
22: oar on him.
14: It made his life a living hell that was an assassination
22: of his character he just got a raw deal
23: the true story needs to be told the the truth needs to be told
24: unparalleled untold unsung the story of ike turner
0: like Ike and Tina. When their music played, it, it just went straight to your soul. On?
5: On, baby,
24: Tina Turner, of course, was the singer and the star on stage. Ike Turner was everything else. Band leader, arranger, pianist, guitarist and a pioneer whose musical legacy spanned five decades.
18: He took the blues and created his own Ike Turner sound.
25: had ideas and Tina put them across
24: the Ike and Tina review was Ike Turner's greatest creation and for two decades his ruling passion
0: he knew exactly what he wanted and he knew exactly how to get it from you.
22: He went from the choreography to creating the costumes to managing, to booking, to the girl steps, the hair on the head. He created everything himself.
10: His will the highway. You either do or you don't.
12: But over
24: time, that compulsion for control over music, bandmates, and most famously, his wife, would lead to a spectacular fall for Ike Turner, destroying his career, his reputation, and ultimately, his life.
22: The demons that Ike had in him had been there for a long time, and had been surrounding him for a long time, let's put it like that.
18: People who went to see that movie, they thought that he was the worst person in the world. He just
12: hurt within himself that he couldn't get through this, and he rather just go up and just tear himself up by getting high.
26: He had a heart, you
22: know. He he wasn't he wasn't what people had made him out to be. His character was so destroyed. I think he just died a heartbreak.
24: Born in 1931, Ike Turner was never a stranger to trouble or hard times. His mother was a seamstress, his father a Baptist minister. He grew up on the outskirts of Clarksdale, Mississippi, where poverty and segregation
14: came with the territory. That was uh, quite a bit of a divide at that time. It was a little tough, there was a lot of, you know, prejudices.
26: The protection, you know, that law is supposed
24: to give to people,
26: you know, that was non-existent
24: in, in, in those days. When Ike was five years old, he watched as his father was savagely beaten by a local posse for having an affair with a white woman.
23: He was actually in the front window watching these men do this to his father. You know what I'm saying? That is traumatic enough. And then seeing that and not being able to do anything about it.
19: The hospitals during the time wouldn't even allow him to go to be treated.
14: They had to prepare a tent in the backyard. And him and my mom would have to go out and take things to his dad. And they say you could smell it for miles around because his intestines was completely beaten. Out.
24: his father ultimately died from his injuries
14: you know something like that at a young age you know you don't ever a race. with his father gone ike was frequently abused sexually by
24: older women beginning at the age of six
19: by the time he was 12 years old he had been molested by three older women yes and you know it was rape These women forced themselves upon him as a kid.
14: No one looked at it in that terms of the Greek, but uh, it probably gave him a lower esteem as far as dealing with women.
24: But growing up in Clarksdale, Ike found his calling as well. The town was a mecca for blues and home base for such legends as Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and pianist Pine Top Perkins.
20: Pine Top played a lot at a pool hall, and Ike had a job at the pool hall uh, sweeping up. And Pine Top said if Ike ran errands for him, uh, he would teach Ike how to play.
24: By his teen years, Ike was spinning records at local radio station WROX and developing his musical chops on piano and guitar. Ike, not only did he DJ here, mm-hmm. but the Ike Turner Orchestra
8: played um, at certain times during the day, or during the week, whenever.
26: We put our band together, and uh, I named it the King's Rhythm. Whatever would get hot on the box, that's what mm-hmm. we would play. When we started playing, the people would applaud us. We sounded just
14: like the jibbox, you know? Ike had a very different explosive sound, because within his blues, you had like a jazz flavor. And then, on, you know, on top of that, he had a rock edge. Ike's sound caught the ear of BB King,
24: who had his own radio show up the road in Memphis. That led to a recording date in 1951 with Sam Phillips at Memphis's Sun Studios, and a song Ike wrote about a hot car called Rocket 88.
4: You women have heard of Jalop, if you've heard the noise they make But let me reintroduce my new Rocket 88 Get it straight just one way Everybody
8: likes my Rocket 88 The shorty guitar, the piano part that I play and uh, you know, the sax solo and all those things many people consider that to be the first rock and roll song. There was a disc jockey, Dewey
26: Phillips and when he played it on his radio show all of the white kids would tan to the record shop to buy it. That's when they found out that white kids would buy black music.
24: Rocket 88 hit number one on the charts, stayed there for five weeks, and became a classic that Ike would proudly perform five decades later.
0: When I hear Rocket 88, I think of a transition between Delta Blues and rock and roll. It's a landmark, actually, this, this song.
26: You may want to call it rock and roll, but I call it boogie woogie. But you know, they can call it what they want to call it. i would just be playing what I play.
24: But there was a catch. Because Ike saxophonist Jackie Brinston sang the lead vocal, he got the song credit. And Ike Turner got a check for $20.
14: The numbers on this was probably at that time astronomical as far as uh, what it was actually producing but to get $20.
19: That helped him to understand why it's called show business. After that happened, he was determined that no one would ever take anything from him again. Through the early
24: 50s, Ike worked as a record producer and session musician on records like B.B. King's first hit, Three O'Clock Blues, while still leading his own band, The Kings of Rhythm. By 1956, he'd moved the group to St. Louis,
21: where Ike sound literally crossed racial divides. They would drive across the bridge between East St. Louis and St. Louis and go into clubs where you know, white teenagers were in attendance. And then they'd drive across the bridge and the kids would follow them back and forth. And his argument with the club owners uh, was that, if you don't let my fans come in, I'm not gonna play. So he forced the color line in East St. Louis, as well as across, across the bridge.
24: A turning point came one night in 1958 with the arrival of one particular fan named Anna Mae Bullock.
25: I was uh, very well known in St. Louis and I was still in high school, very young. And, <laughs> and I had wanted to sing with this group, too young to go in the clubs, but I sort of put on makeup and so forth to get in. And I, I, when I finally got to him, I asked him if I could sing with him. And he said, yeah, I'll call you. Yeah, you know.
5: Sure.
25: Yep. <laughs> so then, but so he never called me. So uh, one of the musicians set uh, one of the microphones down one night, and I I took hold of the mic and started singing. Wow.
24: And after Anna Mae joined the band, Ike gave her a stage name that would help keep her there. Tina Turner.
27: He was really passionate, serious about his name and in ownership. He said those names were registered because of
19: what happened. He was burned once and he said, never again will anyone take anything from me.
24: By the turn of the 1960s, Ike Turner had made his mark as a musical force, but with little to show for it.
21: Up to that point, Ike wasn't really well known beyond a very you know, hot regional band because he didn't have any real music at radio yet that was really making the mark.
24: That all changed one day when Ike brought Tina Turner to the recording studio to back up a singer named Art Lasseter
21: on a song Ike wrote called A Fool in Love. I could pay for the session, and so the meter's running. Art's not there, so Ike decides to go ahead and cut the song and says, Tina, you sing it.
4: Won't somebody please, please tell me what's
5: wrong. You're just a fool. You know you in love what you say.
24: Released in the summer of 1960, a fool in love shot up the R&B charts peaking at number two and cracked the pop top forty as well.
19: a fool. A in love was in a range designed for a man. And that unearthly well and that uh that delivery of it was what made it what it was.
24: The song also put Tina and her background singers, the Ikeettes, on center stage, which was just the way Ike liked it.
5: You like
3: gonna keep a-
23: and he got Tina up there. He took the backseat. And, of course, he wanted her to shine. We were just the puppets. And, and I mean that in a, in a very
0: kind way because we all felt like we were fulfilling a vision.
24: With the song's success, Ike began billing the group as Ike and Tina Turner. They released their first album together in 1961. By that time, they were more than friends
19: he said that when he first saw tina he didn't think anything of her. she had skinny legs and she wasn't the hourglass figure that he was used to and he looked at her like a sister and when she met him she said oh he's ugly she didn't know what people saw in him but she realized he was very charming and ike had a way with the lady
24: Tina gave birth to their first child together and took over raising Ike's two other children along with one of her own from earlier relationships. (laughs) They married in 1962 and set their romance to a song called, It's Gonna Work Out Fine.
10: Beginning, they start courting. If you just listen to the record, that's all it was. It was all just a story between Ike and Tina Turner. It's gonna
24: work out fine. Did just that once more, rising to number two on the chart.
19: Everything happened the way it was supposed to, and as they say, the rest is history.
24: With the arrival of Tina Turner and back-to-back hits, Ike Turner had found his groove as a band leader, and he was determined to keep it that way.
0: When Ike Turner would walk through the door, you straightened up, you listened, you did whatever he asked you to do. Your uniforms were clean and pressed before you went on stage.
19: If your tie wasn't just so-so. Uh, If your suit wasn't crisp and pressed well, their wigs weren't on correctly. If they had a run in their stockings, he would find you.
10: He arranged his whole whole show. He could tell the horns exactly what note they had, and won't leave until
20: he get it right. He wanted his music to be great because that's that is all he had in this world. The result was a show like no other.
5: (laughs)
25: The closest
0: thing to the Ike and Tina Turner Review in terms of energy was James Brown.
14: He had these girls up here and they were moving, they were, wow, very beautiful young ladies moving. You hadn't seen nothing like that and it was pretty exciting.
24: But after their first flurry of singles in the early 60s, Ike and Tina couldn't score a hit. Recording on small labels, they released seven albums in a row that failed to chart. And the harder Ike worked, the less he had to show for it.
0: We were playing clubs that were like maybe 250, 300 people maximum. And often the clubs were nothing short of raggedy
20: without a hit record, his price was going down. You know, there were less and less people at his concerts and he had a huge nut. He had 15 people on the road every time he went.
19: He was known to work and not sleep for three or four days.
20: You can only do that so long. And you know, it made him crazy.
19: Ike Turner did not start to indulge in drugs until the age of 30 years old. And what happened was, he was in Las Vegas, and he met two people, a famous African-American comedian, and that comedian's very close rock and roll friend.
21: He said, I got together with these two entertainers, and they were doing coke, and they gave me some, and I didn't want to take it. And I just took it, and I went home. And then he just said, one night I was writing, and I just decided to try it. And the next thing, he says, I know I was hooked. And I said, who were those two guys? And he said, Elvis and Red Fox.
25: What got him hooked on the cocaine, was so that he realized that he could just stay up for days and days and days and do what he loved in his passion, which is music.
24: By the late 60s, Ike and Tina had established themselves in England, thanks in part to the Rolling Stones, who put them on tour as their opening act.
0: And it was during this time that Ike was starting to get the idea that, you know what, we probably need to cross over. Okay, but how do you do that?
24: Ike began arranging rock songs to suit his and Tina's style and struck gold with a song and a show for the ages.
21: hit and they completely retooled it and that's a little bit of the magic of who he was. They had to the s-
14: slow start and then they had to the interlude and then they had to the heavy pound
24: Proud Mary shot to number four on the pop chart.
25: the dancing that we were doing so vigorous and fast, and it was like, phew.
20: Ike Turner was living the dream his way. Everybody got into the cocaine. Everybody else got into sexual orgies. It just became um, out of control, way out of control. (laughs) Worked with Jimi Hendrix and Hendrix had just gotten out of the army and every time there was a break where and it should have been quiet um, you know Hendrix was doing his you know his playing and you know in Ike's band you play everything note for note or you were fine okay and so Hendrix didn't last very long at all
24: By the early 70s, Ike and Tina Turner had built a reputation as the most electrifying act in popular music.
0: It was a sound that made you want to dance. You couldn't sit still. You had to move because it just kind of fit right into that groove.
24: With money rolling in, Ike opened a state-of-the-art studio called Bolick Sound. that drew stars from Paul McCartney and George Harrison to Little Richard. It soon became Ike's home away from home,
18: both for business, And for pleasure. He had a little music box, a powder music box, and when you open it, it played music. And he would have that full of cocaine. He shared it with everybody.
10: Anybody said they didn't try cocaine, Ike turned a damn lie. Because it was always free.
24: On his good days, friends and bandmates say Ike could be generous in other ways.
10: When little Richard... I was about to lose his house and Ike Turner kept him saved. That was the truth.
20: No matter what Ike was doing, he took calls from Pine Top Perkins and he helped him every time he could. There was a, a little old lady.
22: She was having a hard time paying her bills and she uh, didn't have food and and someone came and told him about her. He would send me over there every two weeks or once a month to feed her, to pay her rent. He was a nice guy.
12: You know, Ike was nice. But see, one thing about him, he always feared that some people would take
1: his kindness from weakness.
24: And by the mid-70s, Ike's weakness for cocaine was all-consuming. He literally burned a hole in his nose and used more of the drug to mask the pain. Meanwhile, his and Tina's marriage was disintegrating as the top floor of Ike's studio became known as the Whorehouse.
0: They had hired um, another girl to uh, be an Ike hit, and I was to train her, and Tina said, well, she's for Ike. And I looked
25: at her like, what do you mean? She said, Ike chose her, and she's for Ike. I don't recall actually getting women for Ike. I was friendly with everybody that was there, but actually... I had no freedom to go out and get anybody because we were all basically locked in. So there was no freedom for this kind of a thing. Whoever was there was whoever he had brought in. You know, that's how it was. I want you to go with me sometime, like I go okay, with you. Okay, okay, tell you what. I don't we... want to go this time. No, oh, you got it. No, I want to go when I want to go. Say with you
26: too. No, you
12: got it.
22: Don't want to be
26: forced.
5: No, we
12: <laughs> I never saw him being abusive to Tina. I never saw that. But I can detect that he had that character.
25: Mike was a violent man when I met him with his ladies before, his women before. I knew that he was a violent person. I also knew that he had some problems from childhood and it sort of reflected in his life.
10: Nobody ever saw Ike Tina Turner the fight. They all did it behind closed doors. You might see her next day with a swollen eye, but nobody in the band saw it, saw it when it happened.
24: But the show went on through the 70s as Ike and Tina convincingly played their parts as a couple in love and in lust.
4: They
27: would hit the stage and they would do a concert, no breaks, and they would just vibe. Like we are on this stage, and we have to give these people what they came here for, and they would just blend and they would just deliver.
5: I
10: Ike Turner Turner? It was the greatest up until the end.
24: The end came in Dallas, Texas, in 1976 when Tina Turner literally ran away in the middle of a concert tour,
18: ending their marriage and their music for good. By the time we realized what was going on, she was probably halfway to New York by then. And uh, he was
20: uh, noticeably upset about it. He was over-focused on being a star you know he loved that life and you know when tina left he was chasing it like a crazy person
24: ike spent the next 10 years on a slide to nowhere he tried to carry on touring but lost his record deal while selling his studio to pay off debts in 1981 the building was mysteriously burned to the ground three months after that ike was arrested for shooting a
21: news delivery man for kicking his dog. Everybody knew him in that period as Dracula and he had a 45 and he tried to shoot himself and it went click and he says, I was just lucky my gun misfired." Arrested numerous
24: times for drug possession, Ike hit bottom in 1987. After he tried to sell 10 ounces of cocaine to an undercover cop, he was
12: sentenced to four years in prison. I saw him two days before he went, turned himself in. He cried like a baby. He cried, he cried. So, oh man, I'm feeling, I gotta go to prison.
19: Music was his life, and his life was coming to an end because he couldn't see anything beyond music, and he didn't know how to get out of this hole.
24: After serving 18 months and getting time off for good behavior, Ike Turner left prison in 1991, clean and sober for the first time in decades, and hopeful for a fresh start.
26: You don't know what freedom is until you come in there. You got no freedom. (laughs) When you go in there, you got no nothing out here free.
23: When he went to prison, it was the best thing that happened. He got clean, he moved forward with his life, and he came out as a better person.
25: The gracious time for him, gracious time for him to, you know, to catapult him to get him up and running. Because there are a lot of people that love that loved him and wanted to see him successful.
24: Members of Ike's family say that they felt the presence of a kinder, gentler Ike.
23: Daddy literally invited anybody and everybody in his house. He would just call random, what you doing? Come over. Okay, so we
27: would come over. I grew up with him as my grandfather, and, you know, he
25: had
23: pictures of me everywhere in his house. You know, I loved him, and he cherished me. He had gone to prison, and he did have that stigma on him. So it took him some time, and then people were like, let's give you a chance. So then they started. Well, then the movie came out.
24: Back when Ike was struggling in the 80s,
23: he'd signed away his rights
24: to a film about Tina Turner's life titled, What's Love Got to Do With It? Released in 1993, the movie put a spotlight on Ike's worst behavior and then went further by concocting a harrowing rape scene that had no basis in fact.
20: And they did a good job uh, putting together a movie uh, that sold tickets. But, you know, and even Tina said this, You know, it wasn't uh, really uh, very close to the truth.
24: And when confronted by the media, Ike was often his own worst advocate.
26: Oh, uh, what I did do to Tina? It's like, uh, uh, we've had, uh, I've slapped Tina. uh, The only time I ever punched Tina in my life was the last fight that we had. And and, and, and that was uh, in Dallas, Texas. uh, This is the last time we broke up.
23: After the movie came out, people were like, sorry, we're not gonna help you.
14: Wasn't getting off the state side and personal confrontations with people in the public. It made his life a living hell, man.
18: We were going to a show in San Diego, and as we walked through going to the stage, this white woman spit on him. She said, "You no good, low down wife beater," and you know. And he got that a lot, but he wouldn't ever say anything, he would just kind of drop his head and walk
27: on. People don't know what he dealt with behind closed doors. He used to be tough and say stuff like, oh, forget that, you bare me face down so Oh where kiss my ass, you know.
25: But we knew better. We would go to like blues festivals in Long Beach and he was really insecure. He didn't want to get out of the car. He cared about what people thought about him. And I, I do think that he regretted the life that he led and some of the mistakes that he'd done.
4: If you ever dream, you know what
26: I'm talking about.
24: But Ike Turner never gave up on his music. Through the 90s, he gradually rebuilt his career by getting back to his roots and rocking fans with the show that put himself, for the first time, squarely. On center stage.
4: I for one woman.
23: People don't realize that. Daddy was afraid. It was like, Uh oh, what do I do? I gotta be in the front. People are all on me now. They're not looking at someone in front of me anymore.
27: But he really would have the whole anxious
23: jitters of stage fright that used to
27: shake him up every single time.
14: The turning point was what he had to do to overcome that fear. And uh, you couldn't deny the fact, well, he's back. (laughs)
5: I took my whole life for granted, I took uh, my thing with, with Tina,
26: uh, I took my family and her, I took my career, I took everything for granted, man, and then I lost everything like taking it for granted, you know, now I can appreciate what, you can appreciate, you can appreciate everything more than once you get your head and your thinking clear.
24: At the turn of the 2000 decade Ike Turner was forging one of the most unlikely comebacks in popular music his 2001 solo album here and now copped the Grammy nomination as his live shows drew bigger and bigger crowds both at home and overseas
27: he was proud but it was more like <sighs> yes to feel like, my gift and what it is that I have to offer still being respected.
24: In 2006, Ike released what would be his final album, titled Rising with the Blues. It won the Grammy for Best Blues Album of the Year. It was Ike doing what
26: Ike wanted to do, and who'd have thought it, who'd have sunk it, that that would have done what it did
23: to come back with the rising with the Blue cd and then get actually get the grammy for that one he was on cloud nine cloud nine he was very proud
19: and happy although he was sad because by that time he was back on drugs um, and he would have wanted to win a grammy uh, as a man who wasn't an addict
24: Ike had remained drug-free for over a decade following his release from prison but friends say that an attempt to retrieve a relative from a crack house in 2004 set him back on an all-too-familiar
21: path he got a phone call uh, to go save a family member from that kind of a setting and he went there and uh, as I told me later he said they were blowing smoke in his face and it just He just, he finally just said, hand me the pipe. He came
18: up to me one day and he admitted it. He just said, hey man, you know, I have slipped and and I'm I'm using again. And it was very, very disappointing.
25: He was even saying how he wanted to even go back to jail. He He tried to go to different rehab and that. And every time he would go, someone would
27: leak that he was there and he'd leave. If he'd leave.
24: By 2007, Ike was suffering from emphysema, sending him to the hospital several times that year, and putting an end to his performing career. But even in his final days, Ike continued to make music, including a song about his life struggles that he titled "Ashamed Man."
26: i lost all respect for myself. I can't blame nobody else. I brought my own life down to this.
10: How
25: long would it take me to quit? He's literally crying because of what he's going through. The pain and the anguish that he's going through. It'll tell you exactly where he was doing his last day. I'll
4: do anything but I to blame.
9: I ain't no man.
14: Fully listen to that tape, and my eyes just start running, and uh, I was crying, man, and I felt his pain in the music.
4: i rather try die.
22: I'm ashamed to call myself a man. I've never held a man in my arms and just rocked him while he cried. And I knew he was through then. I knew Ike wasn't gonna live after that too long.
24: Ike Turner died on December 12th, 2007. He was 76 years old.
27: You would think his death was the worst day of my life, but home going because that's when it all sinks in. You know, you see the coffin.
10: He
25: wouldn't have wanted us to mourn over him. He would want us to celebrate his life. And so that's what we did.
10: They could say what they wanted about Mr. Turner. His genius and all of that, he, he took it to his grave.
27: I can honestly say I know that he went with his mission accomplished.
26: We all have a belief, and I believe that you're saved by what you believe. And I will play what I play in any church. I will play it anywhere because I feel that it's pure music. I feel that it's for the soul.
0: I wish that people would focus on the wonderful music that he was able to put together and and give to a, a loving audience and show some forgiveness.
25: You know, everybody deserves that. My dad did not have a halo on his head, but he didn't have horns either. He was a man, a very gifted, talented man, who all he wanted to do was to play music and give people something, give them a memory.
1: And uh, that was a review of the Icons Eternal review uh, here during uh, Black Music Month uh, on the Pan.